through me. If you have your Bible, let's turn quickly here. I know you've got a picnic to go to, um, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. This is uh, holy water. Did you know that? You know how to get holy water. You put it on the stove and you boil the devil out of it. That's just... What do you think, Denny? Seven? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you found yourself on the receiving end of a loving act? Maybe, you know, grass is growing like crazy and... uh, um, Maybe you've been gone for four, five, six, seven, eight days and, and you, you come back and somebody's mowed your grass. Uh, that's a loving act. I know I'm away this week just mentioning, you know. <laughs> um, when, the, when the stimulus checks came, uh, I was aware of a situation of a person that responded to a need. Actually, uh, this couple didn't really... Um, know that they're going to receive the stimulus check, which we ended up paying taxes on. Did you know that? I, just that's a sideline. But anyhow, um, so they decided. You know, we weren't anticipating this money. It's something that's sort of kind of sort of free. And so, what did they do? They found a couple that they had their income stream interrupted because of COVID, and they gave them their stimulus check. A couple, older couple down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, knew that we were working up in Falling Rock, West Virginia, where the lady had grown up. They've done very well over the years. They're probably in their late 70s. And they said, you know, we don't need our stimulus check either. We would like to see this resource go to Falling Rock. And so we identified three different projects, and we were able uh, to, to carry out their wishes. Jesus one time was asked, well, more than once, but uh, as we looked at Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, he was asked, what was the greatest of the commandments? Now, it's fairly clear in the context as we look at it here in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, that this guy is... Uh, Asking a question, but his motives are suspect, to say the least. Notice it with me as we look here to the first part of this story. We see the insincere question. Notice it in chapter 10, verse 25. And a certain lawyer or expert in the Old Testament law, that's the idea of a lawyer, not not what we normally think of as lawyer, stood up and put him to the test, talking about Jesus, saying to Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this isn't a sincere inquiry. This guy tries to test Jesus, try to get him in an awkward place where he might not be able to fully um, explain himself. On another occasion, Jesus did respond to that question, and he said these words. The greatest commandment is that you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul and all your might, and second is like unto it, you're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a high standard, isn't it? Martin Luther said these words, a Christian is someone who lives outside himself. He lives in Christ by faith and in his neighbor by love. Most of us are familiar with the greatest commandment and the second commandment. 
but the real question isn't do we know where it's located in the Bible or do we have it memorized? That's not the real question. The real question is this. How close do I come when it comes to living it, right? That's the real question. How close do we come when it comes to living it? Again, Martin Luther, a Christian is someone who lives outside himself, lives in Christ by faith, and in and for his neighbor by love. We've seen it, we've read it, we can quote it. But Jesus didn't utter those words to take up space on a page, but rather that those words might take up resonance within our hearts. Some people want to approach God in their own way, and certainly this is the case as we look to chapter uh, 10, verse 25. Notice again that, that insincere question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's seeking to test, to trap the Lord Jesus. This is not a sincere seeker. He's trying to uh, somehow or another box Jesus in that he might show something of his inferiority of a sound answer. That's what his motive is. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's an expert in the Old Testament law. But as you look here and as you examine verse 25, the question reveals that this guy... This Old Testament expert believes that eternal life is based upon what? Based upon a certain number of meritorious acts as if to suggest that salvation comes uh, through human efforts or human works. Well, Jesus doesn't quibble at this point. It's kind of strange how he maneuvers through this conversation. There is a contradiction in the question. Because you don't do something to inherit a gift, right? Inheritance is based upon on relationship, not achievement. And so Jesus reverses places with this young man and he says, uh, Hey, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? What does he do? He points Jesus, uh, Jesus points him back to the scriptures. It's always a good place. If you're in dialogue with somebody and they're asking you spiritual questions, It's a good thing to point them in the direction of God's Word. Now notice how this young man responds to that question. And we find here Jesus beginning to inch into what I've referred to as the insightful answer. But notice how he responds. He responds by Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, which is the whole duty of man. What does it say? You're to love your Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Do this and you will live. Now let me translate for you verse 28. It's a present tense verb form, and we could translate it something like this. Do this and keep on doing this without a single lapse, without a single failure at any point in your earthly life and you shall live. Okay? What's the huge problem? Can't do it. Can't do it. We've all taken the course. We've flunked the course. We've taken the test. And it's not about 
that is eternal life. It's not about engaging in a series of religious acts. It's about a heart relationship with the living and true God and with His Son, Jesus Christ, who's our Redeemer. That's how you make the connection to life eternal. It's a great exchange. God made His Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. The insightful answer. So... This expert in Old Testament law continues in his unsuccessful quest. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Notice what he says. Okay, you talk about this. So uh, justifying, notice verse 29, wishing to justify himself, Jesus, he says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What's he doing? He's using a diversionary tactic. The heat is on. Jesus reading him inside like an open book. He reads each of us, by the way, in the same manner. And so he's using this to hopefully escape the all-seeing eye of the Lord Jesus. So he seeks to sort of take the uh, conversation in a little different direction. And so he says, who's my neighbor? But he's trying to justify himself in the process, right? Now, many... Jews in Jesus' day had a very limited understanding or idea or concept when it comes to a neighbor. A neighbor would be a family member or a friend or maybe an extended family member. It could be somebody you would attend a temple or synagogue with. They viewed Gentiles and Samaritans as those who were created by God to feed the fires of hell. That's how much animosity they had. And so Jesus clears the confusion in this parable when he helps us understand exactly what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. He identifies the neighbor and then he helps us understand how it is that you and I might be second commandment people. Notice with me verse 30. And here we find that insightful answer, the second part to the story. And Jesus replied and said these words, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. He was stripped and beaten, and they left him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down the road, and he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, this would be somebody that served in sort of a deacon capacity at the synagogue or the temple. He also came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he came to him and he bandaged his wounds and he poured oil and wine in them and he set him on his own beast and he brought them to an end and took care of him. And he, on the next day, he took out two denarii, about a week's worth of wage, and he gave it to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. The... Jericho Road, as it was called, was also referred to as the Way of Blood. Jerusalem sets up high, about 3,300 feet above sea level. Uh, Jericho is below sea level. 
And so it's a meandering road, which all kinds of opportunities for people to be plundered, to be pillaged, to be robbed. And that's exactly what has happened. Now, it's interesting to note, Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time uh, revealing something of the nature of the depravity of man. He could have done that very easily here. But what is clear here is this, this man was brutally beaten, robbed, vandalized, left for dead, And then Jesus moves on and helps us understand what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. He makes it clear also in this story that there are three types of people, three types of people in this world in which we live. There are people who are takers, and there are people who are keepers, and there are people who are givers. People who uh, speak up in a conversation and they share a well-timed, well-placed, derogatory comment about somebody else. That kind of person's a taker. People who maneuver and manipulate things at work to get themselves lined up so that they might have the very best of advantage in the interview process for the annual raise. That person's a taker. The directives flowing forth from the gold-plated walls of the Kremlin. That person's a taker. Taking thousands of lives. Thousands of lives. Well, there's a second group here. Notice with me. The priest comes. He sees the situation. He walks on by. Levi does the same thing. Same thing. So there are people who are keepers. What's a keeper? A keeper is a person uh, who holds on to things, who, who lives in their own undisturbed space of serenity and security. A keeper is a person who steers clear of any interruption in their tight, tidy, self-directed life. They don't want to be bothered. They don't want their plans to be interfered with. So... The priest was on his way home. He'd served eight days in a rotation there at the temple. He's making his way back. He sees the situation. He looks at it. And my guess is, and you help me with this, I don't think he looked the guy in the eye. Do you? He walks on by. He just walks on by. It would mean a major interruption in my life. I'd have to go back to Jerusalem, and I'd have to go through all these purification rituals, even to get back into my priestly rotation. i got plans with the family. And so what does he do? He says to himself, you know, and so he just walks on by. Say it with me. Walk on by. Levite the same. He just walks on by. Not loving his neighbor as himself, but loving himself and ignoring the neighbor's need. He just walks on by. You see, in the story and in our lives, there are people who are takers. There are people who are keepers. And then there are people, thankfully verse 33 is here, who are givers. Notice what it says in verse 33. 
here as we look at this insightful answer, he helps us understand exactly what it means to be a person who's committed to loving his neighbor as himself, a person who takes serious the second commandment. He says, a certain Samaritan was on the journey. He came to him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion upon him. He came to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine in them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn. And the next day he took out a week's worth of money and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I return. Three key ingredients in biblical compassion. Three key ingredients in biblical compassion. Number one, notice it as we looked at this man's life, he had the capacity to see. And when he saw him, You see, biblical compassion involves the capacity of being able to see people, to see people in need. Back in Kansas City, when I pastored many years ago, back in the 80s, I guess it was. I think it was in the 80s. Maybe it was the 60s. No, just kidding. You know, I'm I'm getting old and I'm kind of forgetful. You know that, so. I went to a psychologist and I said, you know, I've got this problem with memory can't remember one thing from one moment to the next. How long have you had this problem? I said, how long have I had what problem, right? (laughs) So, as we think about true biblical compassion, you must have the capacity to see people hurting with their knees. The guy in Kansas City used to look at people's heels on their shoes, and if, if they were worn down to a certain extent, he would go out and buy them a pair of shoes. The capacity to see people. Secondly, as we see it here, he had the, what? The capacity to have his heart moved. Notice, when he saw him, he felt, he felt compassion. What is compassion? It's the ability to have someone else's hurt in your heart. That's what compassion is. And then thirdly, as we see it here, he had a willingness to go out of his way. He takes some extraordinary measures here in assisting this unknown man. So we see here the components to true biblical compassion, but we see in the world we live in, and in that world as well, three kinds of people. Takers, keepers, and givers. As you think about those three words, which best describes you? Think about it. So he takes him and he does everything necessary to get this guy to a place where healing can begin. And uh, verse 35, he goes out on a financial limb obligating himself to extensive expense. Listen. If we truly love God... And if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, love doesn't look away. Love doesn't turn away. Love doesn't walk away. Love doesn't come up with some creative excuse as to why I might be able to just walk on by. This world we live in, there's a lot of takers. There's a whole lot of keepers. But it seems to me that God's more interested in transforming us to be people who are givers. In Christ, you don't need a reason to help people. When you were born again, it was programmed into your spiritual DNA. I've told this story here in the past, but it bears repeating. 
one of the saddest sights at the end of World War II was all the little orphan kids that were just without homes, without any supervision, day and night. And this GI from the United States came around the corner about 4 a.m. in the morning, and he saw this little uh, British lad with his nose pressed up against the plate glass. It was a pastry shop, and that little boy was just, just taking in every move. And the GI turned and said, Son, would you like to have some of those? Oh, <laughs> sir, I would love to have some of those. The soldier stepped in and got a bag and stepped back out through the door. And he handed that bag of pastries to that little boy. And as he's making his way back to the Jeep, he feels a tug on his trench coat. And the little boy looks him in the eye and he says, Mister, are you God? Are you God? Something in that soldier's act reminded that little boy of God and that something is love. You see, in the world we live in, there are takers and there are keepers, there are givers. Listen to this. First John chapter 3 Verses 16 through 18. By this we perceive the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's material goods. And and sees a brother in need. And has no uh, pity upon him. How does the love of God dwell in him? My little children. Let us not love in word or in tongue. But let us love in deed and in truth. Amen? I read something just recently. We'll close with this. From John Piper. Can we put that up? We'll look at it real quick. Very convicting. Look at it with me. Fight for us, O God, that that we not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty uh, excitements. Life's too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that, bath, that burst. Heaven is too great, hell is too horrible, eternity's too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. So the calling for us is simply this. Love God like there's no tomorrow. And love your neighbor in the same manner, in the same measure as you love yourself. In lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem the others as more important than himself. Look not merely out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And that's why Jesus concludes as he does. You go and do the same thing. Go and do likewise. The invitational challenge. Would we pray together? Let's bow.